Well, next this evening, if you've any connection with UCD in Dublin, you may well have heard of John Henry Cardinal Newman. In 1991, he was proclaimed venerable by Pope John Paul II. A decree approving his second miracle was authorised earlier this year and begins the process of him becoming a saint. Well, our next guest is Father Dermot Mansfield. Father Dermot's the author of Heart Speaks to Heart, the story of Blessed John Henry Newman, a book which plots the course of Newman's life as an Anglican, his entry into the Catholic Church and his influence on the Second Vatican Council. Dermot, welcome to The Leap of Faith. Who was Cardinal Newman? Cardinal Newman, first of all, was a Londoner. For the first half of his life, for 44 years, he was in the Anglican Church. In middle age, at the age of 44, 45, he became a Catholic. The Church of Rome, he entered it. He felt it was the living centre somehow. There's a whole story to that, of course. Uh, and then he was ordained as a Catholic priest. Um, he felt he was wondering about that because he felt he was ordained already. But anyway, he was ordained in, in Rome. He joined the Oratorians of uh, St. Philip Neri's group, not a religious order, but an association of secular priests, founded them in England in Birmingham and in London. And he went on in the Catholic Church, pastoral work in Birmingham. He was called over in the 1850s to Dublin to found the Catholic University. And he did well in very difficult circumstances, including difficulties with the authority, the Catholic authorities here. Um, he continued in afterwards. He had to give it up eventually. But he uh, remained on, in obviously, in Birmingham and all that to some degree estranged from the Catholic authorities. That's strange to say in a way, but he was. But it was because he had a great vision in a way of what the church should be about in addressing the issues of the age. And that wasn't seen. He was considered by some very good people, including Manning, who became Cardinal in Westminster, who was a convert, like him, as an unsound Catholic. Uh, and that his views, there were others in Rome a bit that way too. Uh, late in life, a new pope, Leo XIII, wanted to honour him, felt this, this, this he should be honoured, this person, and he, ma he made him a cardinal, so his last years, and that, in a way, if you want to call it, cleared his name, in a sense. He was a man of integrity, a man of enormous mind, great, I call it greatness of mind, now that could mean anything, but greatness of mind, courageously want to see things, a man of truth, a man of humanity, a man of prayer. But let's go back a little bit because yes. you, you have to take us through the story of a man who was, you know, well-educated, yeah. ordained, as you say, yeah, in, as, in in, Anglican. as in Anglican. Age of 23. But became dissatisfied. What was that dissatisfaction based on? It, it was perhaps this. You can only say things in a short time. There was no centre of authority in a way. Now, that might sound, well, did he simply need authority? There was something about the issues of the time that he felt needed some central authority. And he, for one thing, the Catholic revival in the Church of England was very a big thing, the Oxford movement that he headed with, with other Anglo people who remained Anglican, John Keeble and Edward Pusey. But in time, he wondered about, is there a universal jurisdiction or something in Christendom? And a phrase from Wiseman, who is Catholic, anyway, founder of the Dublin Review, about Augustine, it is the whole world that judges securely rather than one part of it. That set him thinking, and yet he all the more he wanted to defend his own church, which he loved, the Church of England. 
And he tried to interpret, reinterpret the 39 articles, certainly in a Catholic sense, even though they were polemical at the time, because of time. And his friends support him there. But one by one, the Anglican bishops disowned him. Well, it's triggering something in the back of my mind, because we're talking about 1845. We are. To be a Catholic around that time wouldn't necessarily have uh, been, been a very strong position. It was like heading out into the wilderness. The Catholics then were just little groups, sometimes connected with houses in Lancashire. Or the, the Irish were beginning to flow in and of course the 1840s later went on. Mm. But And then there were people from the terror in France, the, all that coming in, religious order. They were welcomed actually at that time, you know. But uh, he was heading into the unknown. He didn't know them. The only Catholic he knew was Dr. Charles Russell of Manute, who came over and saw him a few, and a lovely courteous man. Was he always seen as an outsider, as a convert? Did, did, was he taken he, he, to it? He, he, he tended to be put to the outside in a way. He recovered his name in the, in the national consciousness, in the English-speaking world in 1864, when he answered Charles Kingsley, who accused him of dishonesty somehow in his thing. And he wrote in weekly installments, his Apologia Pro Vita Sua, A Defence of My Life. And it had an enormous effect. It was like a phenomenon. And with people like George Eliot, who had lost her faith, uh, the novelist and other, reading it, uh, Thomas Hardy was reading it, others. The, the quality of his mind and the quality of his care and his charity for his Anglican and his all that Anglican, you know, struck them. This was a man of, I mightn't agree with him, but this is a man of great integrity and truth. And faith that not everybody would have agreed with him on that, of course. You you make reference elsewhere to the idea that maybe Vatican II should have been called Newman's Council. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Expand on that for me. <clears throat> you can't just put it all that way. There are wonderful people who led up to the Second Vatican Council, John the Twenty Third, theologians like Eve Congar, De Lubac, some of the great prelates like uh, Cardinal Sunens, and, and but his vision of the Church and what it should be in the modern times was uh, like the one that was in Vatican II in those years. And some people used to say at the council that his spirit was brooding over the council. That's the way they put it. You know, they felt that. But his spirit, his vision of the Lumen Gentium, Christ, the light of nations, and in his church, and the church in the modern world, you could say in a way, etc. Uh, the laity, the universal call to holiness in the main document of that, in that uh, the role, I don't know what word now, the role of the laity, but the universal call to holiness and that, that all that would have been very much in him, you know, what he was trying to promote in his time. Now, we, let's spend a little bit of time talking about uh, his, his time in, in Dublin and yeah. particularly the, the Catholic University. I was walking down the, a street in the city the other day, actually, and, and saw a plaque saying that this had been the site of the first medical yes. school. Owed them a first medical. That was the most successful part, in fact, of the university they set up because it was recognised very early on by the Royal College of Surgeons and in Scotland and in England. And it got together a very good group of uh, doctors and so on. Uh, but the overall thing, it was Cardinal Cullen, who, Archbishop Cullen as he was, who asked him to come over. And he liked the idea of a, a Catholic university, a Catholic centre of learning in the English-speaking world. His idea of education was to bring out people who were more generalist than specialists in their education. General, he, yeah. W- broader, broader, yes. Broadly his, educated his rather idea, than... His idea of a, a liberal education rather than just a utilitarian one, which is often the way in third level. He wanted people to have broadness of mind and a real understanding of different issues and, and, and of literature and history 
and Theon, he wanted, he felt that that's very important. Uh, a liberal education, that's the word, that might mean a whole lot, but it meant something where you were truly educated. He felt that's important for the human spirit rather than just heading. He knew you had to be utilitarian too and specialise and qualify, you know. So he wanted to do that and in a measure did it, but it was against enormous odds. You speak about him as if he's almost alive or that you've met him or that you knew, you know him. He, 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 I think that's true in some sense, if we can say that. But I, he has been over the years. And even when I was writing the book 10 years, nine years ago now, it was almost if he was there and I knew what I was doing even though I had to do it all in a timeline and so on. And he's been there for me and the fact that he's going to be canonised, okay, a lot of people are not going to be, it's not the end, be all, end all. It, it, it moves me deeply. And I think the person, the way he was vindicated in his life, even looking over it yesterday, but I went back over it, it almost brought tears to my eyes that this person who'd done so much, somehow late in life with a new... Uh, Pope who's vindicated it just and he also opposed or wanted or tried to oppose the definition of infallibility in the First Vatican Council well, it's not needed what's this all about it's coming out of a clear sky where did it come from it came from the likes of Cardinal Manning and others in England there was Talbot Ward there were different people it was almost their one view of the answer to the times and the attacks on the church declared the Pope infallible and that'll that'll sort them out you know it wasn't, anyway, actually as it worked out, the definition was more moderate because they didn't get their way. The Pope has that infallibility which the people of God have, which the Church has in some sense. It, it was a more general thing, and yet it was focusing just on one thing, you know. If you got ten minutes with the man, what would you talk about? I would just give, I would just thank him for his witness in difficult circumstances, both as an Anglican and as a Catholic, and his vision of Catholicity, of faith, of the gospel, of people's lives. Do what your duties in life bring you to do. That's your road to sanctity. I would thank him for what he has been and his own integrity and goodness and kindness to people. Dermot, is there a musical connection to the man at all or a piece that, that, that you associate with him? Well, he first of all, he was very musical from a young age. Um, he wrote poetry later and including what is now a hymn across the Christian denominations, Lead Kindly Light Amid the Encircling Gloom. That was 1832 in a dark time in his life and he was looking for his way forward. And out of that came the Oxford movement and the whole thing, his leadership of the Catholic revival in the Church of England. Later in life, of course, the dream of Gerontius. He wrote that in bits of paper. It suddenly came to him an inspiration in 1866. Elgar put that to music in his oratory in the 1900 and that became famous through that The Dream of Gerontius it's one of the best love oratorios I think that's performed Well let's listen to that now Father Dermot Mansfield thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith Thank you
Elgar's The Dream of Gerontius, played by the Halle Orchestra, the conductor Sir John Barbarali. <laughs>